Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. In this special episode, we're joined by three contributors to our 30th anniversary issue out this August. First, I speak with Jordan Qualia, a contemplative neuroscientist and experimental psychologist who runs the Cognitive and Affective Science Lab at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. In the fall issue, Jordan reviews a video game that teaches unexpected lessons in impermanence. Jordan and I discuss virtual friendships, cultivating compassion in the digital world, and the unique opportunities video games offer contemplative practitioners. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So why don't you first start by telling us a little bit about the lab work that you do? Sure. So I'm an associate professor of psychology at Naropa, and I direct a psychology research lab. And I mostly focus on topics that may be familiar to this audience, like mindfulness and compassion and lucidity, which is probably the one that's most relevant to our conversation today. And so I think about lucidity pretty broadly as pertaining not just to lucidity during dreaming. I think that's the context most people are familiar with it but also lucidity during things like playing video games or virtual reality or lucidity of different aspects of our own mind that might present illusory content moment to moment. Yeah, so use a variety of different methods, neuroscience included, to explore those topics. I'd say most of my research to date is focused on compassion, but I've got a few of these projects on the back burner focused on lucidity and games and things like that. In our August anniversary issue, we invited you to review a video game. It's not something that we do very often, but we do do it sometimes. And this one is called Bird Alone. Why don't you start by telling us about that game? Yeah, so Bird Alone is this neat little smartphone-based game. I hadn't heard of it before you all invited me to review, but you can play it on iOS devices like iPhones and um, iPads. And the game focuses, strangely enough, on cultivating a kind of meaningful relationship with a virtual bird, a parrot, who talks to you. And you play different sort of activities. You play music together, write poetry, tend to a garden, even cherish memories that you've had together and different things like that. You rub its belly even, feed it oranges. And so (laughs) I think all of this is setting a foundation for what happens in the latter half of the game, which I think we'll probably get into more. But this is, I guess, a little spoiler warning if people want to play the game themselves, maybe not to listen to this next part. But yeah, the game in the latter half gets into bigger themes like loneliness, impermanence, and even death. And so it's kind of like one of those Tamagotchi pets from the 90s, if people remember that. They're like on keychains and you have to take care of them or they die except that this one's got a bit more of a philosophical and existential bent to it. And so, yeah, it's a little game, but it has potential for a big impact. You refer to this as a feathered friendship. Over what period does this feathered friendship take place? The game's unique already in its use of time. Right away, you're restricted to interact with the parrot only once or twice a day. And so... It takes place over a few weeks. I think it took me a couple weeks maybe for a complete playthrough, maybe three weeks, but you can only play a little bit each day. And so that's one of the ways it cultivates the relationship because it's an enduring one. I guess this would be shocking for people for whom this isn't spoiled and we're about to spoil it. So if our listeners want to try it out on their own and not listen to the rest of this, that's acceptable. The game takes a tragic turn at a certain point. What's that? So about maybe halfway through the game, 
your bird friend, your feathered friend starts to make statements that pertain to noticing change happening and even statements that hint at the possibility it might not be around forever. And as time goes on, that turns into more clear statements that the bird's not going to be around forever and that it may be getting old and sick and going to die. And then at a certain point, it does die. And so at that point, then the game is over. And so even if you wanted to continue playing at that point, you're sort of restricted to stop right there. You write in your review something I found pretty interesting, and I'll quote it. Bird alone transforms the phone or tablet in your hand into a sort of mirror, offering you pauses for self-reflection. Can you say more about that, those moments of reflection and connection? Sure thing. So I think the game's very effective in this way partly because of the way it plays with time. So you'll get push notifications on your phone that says the bird's ready to have a conversation with you again. But there's also just excellent writing in the game. And so the dialogue and the back and forth between you and the bird help create these pauses and moments of reflection. And then as a psychologist, I'm really interested in the use of psychology uh, principles in the design of the game. So for example, early in the game, The bird asks you to draw a picture of something that makes you happy to share with him or her or them. And so in psychology, we might call this appreciative inquiry, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like a way of asking a question with a positivity bias built into it. And it's rare that we get to answer that kind of question in daily life. And so that builds, I think, a sense of connection with this virtual friend. And if people haven't experienced that before, it might sound kind of hard to believe, but it is possible to develop these kinds of feelings with a virtual friend like that. And then, yeah, later in the game, it gets to a deeper level. So the bird might notice that change is happening on a daily basis, just kind of the ordinary everyday change, and then reflect about how life is full of change and how change is an inevitability. And then you might be tasked with consoling the bird as it gets sad about the nature of impermanence or the nature of life. And so that builds in pauses that cut through, like if you're playing it every day and you get this push notification and you have this interaction, it kind of cuts through your everyday chatter and it's a little pause of mindfulness maybe. You know, we call this a virtual relationship. I just wondered what your thoughts were as a psychologist. How real is this relationship or is the word real problematic here? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think that might be more in the territory of a philosopher. Right. But, you know, if we're going to define reality in terms of the emotional impact of the relationship or its potential to transform us, I mean, there are people behind the scenes writing the script of this game. And in some sense, I think you're having a real relationship with those people. It's a very curated relationship. And maybe there's additional unique value that can be added in a kind of curated relationship like that. So what Buddhist tenets came up for you as you played around in this simulated virtual world? Yes. So the one I write about most in the review is impermanence. And I talk about it as one of the three marks of existence that the Buddha taught about. The other two being not having a fixed self and a sense of dissatisfaction. And the idea is that these three marks characterize each moment of our existence and paying more attention to them decreases our overall suffering. What didn't necessarily show up in the review is the way that I think this game does draw on all three of the marks. I think there's a kind of interplay between the three marks that is possible to reflect on during the game. And I think it's sort of provocative to think about how people might play a simple game like this and be familiarized with something like the three marks, which from what I've learned in Buddhism is the origin point for samsara, our ignorance of them. So by becoming more familiar with them, 
there's this possibility of more wisdom and compassion. I'm pretty skeptical of the idea that a game like this might lead to more wisdom and compassion in people, but it's an exciting idea for me. Well, why not? I mean, I think it might or it would. At least from the perspective of the player, you're experiencing all of those emotions and attachments and poignancy of everyday life, no? Yeah, I agree. I do think maybe on a subtle level, it is teaching about these things in ways that matter may make a difference. But I think that there's a big difference between implicitly learning about these things on a more subconscious level or just implied by the context of the game versus becoming explicitly aware or consciously aware of the three marks. And at least just my experience as a practitioner is that that conscious awareness is actually what makes the difference in terms of how much awareness of these three marks is decreasing my suffering sort of moment to moment. Right. So as you deepen this emotional engagement and this investment in your feathered friend, let's say, did you notice any moments of lucidity? And again, maybe you can help us with the word lucidity and what you mean by that. Sure. Yeah, I definitely paid attention to things like that, given my uh, research interest in this topic. I've done one study now on virtual lucidity and have a few more theoretical writing projects on this topic that I'm working on right now. The way I think about virtual lucidity is awareness of the virtual aspects of an experience as we're experiencing it. And that's one dimension of it is how much we're aware of those virtual aspects. And then another dimension of lucidity is how much we're able to leverage that awareness to help us regulate our response to the experience. And so I did notice my awareness of the virtual nature of the connection and my interest in that at times broke the illusion a little bit. It allowed me to take a step back. But the neat thing for me about virtual lucidity is it doesn't end the illusion. You can actually play with your awareness and move in and out of immersion in the experience. And so I also noticed that happening for myself. For example, toward the end of the game, I didn't experience a strong grief response for the death of the bird, but I allowed myself to kind of go into that a little bit to see what it was like, mostly so I could write a better review for the game. Well, well, thank you for doing that. It's a wonderful review. I think I asked you this before I met you some years back at a tricycle event. This is a video game, but when we go into virtual reality, what is the danger of not regulating, of taking it too seriously or dipping in it too completely? When does dissociation occur? When does your ability to distinguish between what's real and what's not become an issue? Yeah, I think there is a real danger in that. I think my assumption is that that's the majority of people's experience is kind of dissociated and misuse of these kinds of technology. I think that a majority of people probably engage with devices, technology in a way that's not so mindful and in a way that's more mindless and that the majority of people are addicted to their smartphones as an analogy. And so with VR, I start with that as an assumption that, in fact, the technology is really designed to try and create this sense of overwhelm and immersion that makes us feel that we're somewhere other than where we physically are. And so that's built into the technology and overwhelm our senses and to cause this kind of dissociation. And so I assume that as the default. And then my interest is, okay, how do we then increase the healthiness of people's interaction with this technology? And how do we use contemplative tools to increase the likelihood that this will become something that is a support for people in their journey toward personal growth and transformation rather than something that's just a distraction or an escape or even worse, that's sort of detrimental to their growth? 
So I think you touched on that earlier, using contemplative practice to be very aware of what you're seeing and that you're in this virtual world and you bring mindfulness to that, I suppose, uh, to keep yourself regulated. Is that right? Yeah. And I do think it goes a bit further than that. Mindfulness, I think, is a starting place and it's a necessary ingredient in what I'm calling lucidity. But I really think of lucidity as an additional factor. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like insight that emerges from the mindfulness in a sense that moment by moment, we're aware of what is virtual about our experience if we're in virtual reality. And that awareness allows us more degrees of freedom in terms of how we interact with the experience. So for me, it's analogous to uh, waking up from any kind of illusion and the additional benefit that helps us realize that we can have a healthier relationship to whatever that illusion is. What do you see as some of the unique opportunities that games and apps have to offer contemplative practitioners and the general public? And is there any crossover with your current research or scientific studies? Yeah, so the way I think about these technologies is that they, they all have unique sets of psychological levers that they can pull to create different kinds of experiences within us or for us. And so just like movies have been used for a variety of purposes, from documentary to just pure entertainment, I sort of look forward to artists and creatives pushing the edge of this stuff and contemplatives really pushing the edge of these new mediums. It reminds me of that Marshall McLuhan quote, the medium is the message, in the sense that these mediums have embedded in them a message, I think. And so for me, virtual reality is the most interesting of those because I think the message has something to do with illusion and the way that we can get so strongly caught up in an illusory experience that we feel like it is happening to us in that moment. So I explored this both in context of a research study and a documentary of people trying virtual reality for the first time. And if listeners haven't tried virtual reality before, it's kind of hard to believe. But in the illusion that we put people into, it's called Richie's Plank Experience. They ride an elevator up 50 stories, and then they're tasked with walking a plank that's 50 stories above the ground. And so this creates a really strong illusion of height. And people really freak out, and they have all sorts of reactions to this experience. And to me, that's really interesting because there are varying degrees of awareness of that illusion that we were able to capture and when we measured how lucid people were to the experience. And that predicted how fearful they were during the experience and how much they enjoyed it as well. And so I think embedded in the virtual reality medium is this message about illusion and playing with illusion and our ability to modulate how immersed we are in illusion. And I think that has a lot to do with not just lucid dreams or something like that, but also with awakening more broadly. You know, it's really interesting. And I think I asked you this a few years ago. Intellectually, we know when we go up that elevator and walk that plank that it's virtual. I took a ride once, a virtual reality ride, and I knew it was virtual reality, and yet I flinched. So it's as if the intellectual awareness is one thing, or this idea that, yes, this is virtual, and yet the body is responding to another reality. Can you say something about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a great observation. So this is why my definition of lucidity, there's these two dimensions to it. So there's the degree of awareness, how conscious are we of the virtual aspects of our experience moment to moment. But then the second dimension of lucidity has to do with how much we're able to leverage that more mental awareness, or you could say cognitive awareness, to actually regulate our emotions, our behavior, our body, and so on. So 
that is a separate skill set, I think. And I'm just guessing here, but I think this has to do with maybe embodiment and how much we're used to that sort of mind-body connection. But I think it's a skill that can be developed, can be uniquely trained. And so I think virtual reality could be a place where people have a new tool for training that mind-body connection. Well, Jordan Qualia, this is fascinating stuff, and I don't know how I lost track of you. I hope you contribute again. I'd love to hear more of this. I could talk about it all day. If listeners are curious to play the video game for themselves, it's called Bird Alone, and you can read Jordan's review of Virtual Pet with a Painful Lesson in our fall 2021 issue out this August. In fact, it's our 30th anniversary issue, and we're very pleased to have you be a part of it, Jordan. Thank you. Thanks so much. Now let's listen to the winning poem from the Tricycle Haiku Challenge. This haiku by Becca Chester captures the existential vertigo of 2021. Starfield galaxy, dark emptiness unending, talk me off this ledge. You can read more and submit your own haiku at tricycle.org haiku. Next up is Vanessa's We Say Goddard, a Zen teacher and writer based in New York City. In Just Love Them, Goddard writes of a time when her job at a Buddhist monastery was getting in the way of what she calls the real work. Today, she joins us to talk about the dangers of perfectionism, the transformative power of loving kindness, and practical tools for dealing with burnout. Welcome, as We Say. Good to see you again. Thank you, James. It's good to be speaking with you. So you wrote an article for us about when you realized that your job as director of operations at Zen Mountain Monastery up in Mount Tremper, New York, was getting in the way of your real work, as you put it. What did you mean by that? You know, I think that's when I really realized that we had so much work at the monastery in general. I mean, that was a particularly busy time for me because I was actually doing two jobs, plus my other responsibilities at the monastery. I always wanted to do a good job and I wanted to get things done. And I realized that that was not the most important thing, that the most important thing was to actually meet the people in front of me. At me. That that's why I had gone there to begin with. I mean, I had gone me. there hopefully to wake up, but that was a big part of it, that it was being with people, relating to people that was actually the work that was needed. Everything else was going to get done sooner or later because we always did it. You describe feeling overworked, undertrained, getting sick, skipping meals, running on stubborn manic energy. And this sounds a lot like burnout. Could you unpack what that experience was like for us? It was definitely burnout. And I'm sad to say that I've gone through it enough times, you know, to recognize it. In another piece, I've wrote about that cycle that I would just so often just work, 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 work until I would crash and something would have to go. And then I would rest, I would recover, and then I would just start it all over again. I mean, it was one of those instances where you see how deep habits run, that even in the midst of practice, you can still be doing the comfortable thing, even though it wasn't actually that comfortable, but it was familiar to me. Right. What would you say drove that sort of workaholism or perfectionism? Oh, to be perfectly honest, I've always had this complete terror of what I thought of as being ordinary. 
that when I looked at it more closely, I realized was just the fear of not existing. I mean, the most basic fear, right? That if I didn't make sure that people remembered me, then I would disappear and I would be forgotten and nobody would even care that I had been there or not. So it was really fear of not being. You know, you talk about the nagging inner critic. You have to do better. The dictator, the judge, the executioner, the perfectionist, the bully, the cynic, all of these things seem to be going on and driving you into the ground. Yes. And I mean, that was part and parcel of that perfectionism. And of course, that's also a need for control. I'm the, the daughter of alcoholics. And so I learned early on to do everything that I could to control my environment when so often I was in the midst of very chaotic circumstances. And then I just got rewarded for doing that because I did get things done. And I just learned that as a way of being. And so it took me years really of Zen practice to begin to unpack that and to separate my sense of worth with my achievements or my work. I really love work, but I see the moment in which it crosses over to something else and it really becomes about me needing to prove myself to me Mm -hmm. primarily, and then to anybody else. You know, we say motion masks paint, and you didn't talk so much about that, but if you keep in motion, it's like anything but sit still. And yet you were sitting still for periods, and your mind was racing with what's next. Isn't this also a way to not sit with what is or who you are? Absolutely. I mean, I did used to do that with running. You know, I went through a period where I used running exactly not to feel, not to really look at what was going on inside me because it felt overwhelming. And I have absolutely used work in the same way. And so it took, once again, realizing that that is what I was doing. And, you know, what was a little difficult to separate at the monastery was that there was, in fact, a lot of work and not a lot of us and not a lot of time to do it in. So I wasn't just making that up. At the same time, there was a different way of working that eventually I did learn. Right. Otherwise, I think I would completely have burned out. So it sounds to me like the realities of working at a Dharma center and all of the demands involved in running a business, which essentially it was, among other things, reached a boiling point. And at some point you realized that it took away from your reason for being there. Like you said in the piece that it was damaging one relationship in particular and eventually conflicted with your monastic vows. What was it that changed your mind that woke you up to your original, quote, vow to help others wake up, as you so aptly put it? Well, as I describe in the, in the piece, it was really when my friend pulled out that sheet covered with tiny lettering of all the different ways in which I had heard her. I mean, it was really that visual that stopped me, where I realized, what am I doing? If this is the effect that I'm having on someone, on someone that I'm actually close to, then what am I doing here? I had let my fear really take over. So that was the turning point. And then as I described, you know, the advice that Hogan Sensei had given me so long ago came up in my mind again. And that's when I began to, to shift. I realized that's really the true work. You know, I'm doing all of this work to quiet my mind and all of this work to help run the monastery, but there's also the work of essentially compassion, right? Right, And loving kindness. And that was not something that I was 
comfortable with, that I originally thought of when I went to the monastery. I thought I was going there to develop insight and samadhi, stillness, and wisdom. And so the compassion part of it, I had to work at. I really had to turn towards it very deliberately. Why don't you tell us what Hogan Sensei's advice was? He was giving advice to someone, and I had heard it many times. So I was a little impatient, and I said, Hogan, aren't you tired of just repeating yourself over and over again? And he just looked at me with his bushy eyebrows and said, Suisse, you just have to love them. That was it. He walked away. You know, you also write about another memorable moment, but this one took place at the top of a hill in your monastery cemetery. Could you tell us about that time? Well, that's when I first realized. So I'm walking up the hill and I'm thinking about all the pain that I was causing others, that I was causing myself and the way that I was working. And I invoke this teaching of Hogan's and I say for the first time to myself, let me love them. And that's when I realized that the first impulse that I had was one of fear. And as I say in the piece, I also realized the moment I set up a boundary, I'm not just keeping others out. I'm keeping myself in. I'm keeping myself isolated to whatever extent. And so I had to decide whether I was willing to risk (laughs) that vulnerability in order to do what I wanted to do. And I decided that, yes, I was willing. And so little by little, I learned how to step beyond that boundary. Right. So your practice for this period was really following Hogan's advice and practicing loving kindness. Is that right? Yes. Or love. Yes. I think that was also a time where, in general, as a community, we had begun to turn towards teachings on compassion, overt teachings on compassion, and we had begun studying the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And so that was also in me, that was also in my mind, as I was thinking about how to put into work what Hogan had advised me to do. And so I began to study the Karaniya Metta Sutta a little more deliberately, and then I began chanting it. And to this day, I chant it every morning after my morning sitting. And one of the things that I really love about it is that the words just really spell it out, how to live a life of compassion. And so it's been at different points and by no means infallible, but it's been at different points, a real anchor for me and a real guide as well. Right. Just so our listeners know, the Metta Sutta is the Loving Kindness Sutra, just to make that clear. You describe loving kindness in a very interesting way. You say it describes a person who has chosen to be free rather than to be right. One of the difficult and most profound shifts any of us will ever make. I thought that was really interesting, you know, has chosen to be free rather than right. Well, that's what I realized I had been doing. You know, I wanted to be right. I wanted to be first. I wanted to do a good job. And at a certain point, I realized I need to set that aside if I'm actually going to be free. So what was that shift like for you in the moment and now reflecting on it with some distance? In the moment, terrifying. 
I mentioned that in the piece, I actually started doing a kind of a little mantra, you know, let me love them. When I first started doing that, I actually had a lot of fear. I was afraid to get that close to someone else. And not because I hadn't had the experience of love, but because I was really saying I'm willing to be vulnerable and I'm willing to come close to another and in a sense, enter their space. And there were many ways in my own life and even in practice that I had kept a distance. And so in the beginning, it was scary. Do you think that reciting the metta sutta every day, day after day, eventually just kind of sank in and suffused you? Do you feel that that's how this came about? Or was it more of a sudden awakening to this idea, just love them? No, it was definitely gradual. Mm -hmm. And like I said, you know, it's definitely not a guarantee. And I've still created plenty of pain in my life at different points. But there is a reminder that the sutra gives me that just makes it a little harder. And so you might have these moments of insight and that moment of realizing that I was afraid of really loving another was a moment of insight. But then there's all the work that follows that, that is gradual, right? To getting to a point where I'm not letting myself be stopped by that fear. That's when I realized that the way I was treating others was exactly the way I was treating myself. You know, so my judgment my criticism of others was criticism of myself, was intolerance of myself. And so in the process of learning to love others, I had to learn to love myself too, which by the way, I didn't think that I wasn't doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've always had a, I think, a healthy sense of self-confidence, sometimes not so healthy. And so I never thought of myself as being self-critical or judgmental or feeling insecure about myself. And through this process, I realized that I was, I mean, that that was where the fear was coming from. I was afraid of having Dharma communications sink under my direction. But what I was most worried about is what then others would think of me if that happened, right? So that's when I began to realize that if I was able to soften my own approach to me, my own life, then it would be a lot easier to do it with others. Right. Well, as we say, the piece you wrote is beautiful. You're a beautiful writer. I've told you that before. In addition to being a writer, you're a Zen priest. I wonder, do you ever find that writing becomes a job that gets in the way of your real work? I'm actually not a priest because I'm not ordained anymore. So I'm a lay Zen teacher. I wish writing got more in the way (laughs) of my other work. I so struggle still to write. I feel compelled to do it, but, you know, it's hard work. And so I often find myself doing other things. Mm -hmm. But I'm working more and more towards having my days be all of one piece, right? So that what I'm teaching about is what I'm writing about and vice versa. And that makes it a lot easier. You know, I remember now that you disrobed. I'm sorry about that. But one question I do have is becoming a lay teacher. What has that allowed you to do that you weren't so able to do when you were a priest? Oh, my God. <laughs> I would have to spend quite a while listing everything that I can do. I mean, of course, the first thing is that I'm no longer in a monastic setting. Mm-hmm. And so my schedule is my own. And that has been wonderful to have that freedom. But I think the most important thing for me, and the most challenging 
truthfully, has been to be in the world for the first time in a very long time. And to actually be able to say, I'm a true lay practitioner now, you know, making a living and taking care of the things that people take care of out in the world. And that has been, as I said, very challenging, but also wonderful because it's really made me see firsthand what it is that the people I work with deal with every day. But you relate to them as lay person to lay person. Yes. So do you have any advice for those of us who feel similarly overwhelmed and derailed from our larger goals or aspirations? Just general advice? I would say to stop. To stop and ask, what is most important? You know, I think this time, you know, the pandemic has done that for many of us or has forced many of us to slow down. But I think that's always, always important. And it's actually always possible to stop briefly even and to say, is this is what I'm doing, what I want to be doing and how I want to be doing it. And if it isn't, then what do I need to change? It's so easy to lose sense of that priority, though, because as you so aptly describe in that piece, we're convinced that what we're doing is the most important thing and that it must get done by this time and in this way, and nothing else really is open to view. Yes, until life throws something your way, right? That shows you that perhaps that is not the most important thing. You get a diagnosis of an illness or someone in your family gets sick or dies or you lose your job suddenly. And, you know, I think as practitioners, hopefully we don't wait for the crisis to be asking, is this what I want to be doing? Is this the most important thing? That is, luckily for me, one of the things I did learn at the monastery. So as I describe, you know, forgetting, I kept returning, right? What did I come here to do? What is the most important thing to me? And I continue to do that and continue to pare away the things that are not that important. It's active. You definitely have to keep doing that. Right. Well, as we say, thanks so much for joining us. I hope we can have lunch again sometime soon. We're both in the city. We're both enduring the heat, which you happen to love, me not so much. But to close, I'd like to ask you to read a passage from your piece. Could you do that? Sure. Don't worry, the Buddha said, love the weak or strong, love the great or the small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away. Love them as you love yourself. Love them unconditionally, whether you think you're capable of it or not. This kind of love has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with anything other than itself. And to me, the Buddha said, Forget about things done or left to do. Forget about deadlines and milestones, profits and quotas. Those will be taken care of. They always are. So don't worry. Whenever a being appears in front of you, just love them. That is your focus. That's where the real work lies. So nice. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us, we say? You know, I often think of that saying of the Dalai Lama, my religion is simple. My religion is kindness. And the older I get and the more I practice, the more I think that if we could just do that, if we could just be kind, everything else would fall into place. 
But because it is so difficult for us human beings to do that, we have all of this upaya, right? All of these skillful means to learn how to live with one another. Because really, there is nothing else. There is nothing else that is more important. Thanks so much. That was so nicely put, so we say. And what you just heard Sui Say read from is an excerpt from Just Love Them. You can read the full article in the latest issue of Tricycle, our August 30th anniversary issue. So thanks again. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. We'll be right back after a short break. Many Buddhist teachings and practices focus on difficult states of mind, such as anger, craving, and jealousy but it's also important to cultivate positive states of mind. The seven factors of awakening, which include mindfulness, energy, joy, and tranquility, are an important set of qualities also known as the treasure within. Cultivating these positive qualities brings greater ease and freedom to both our meditation practice and our daily lives. Enrollment is now open for the seven factors of awakening a new online course led by Bodhi College teachers Christina Feldman and Jaya Rutgard. This is an eight-week program of expert instruction, formal meditations, and mindful investigations designed to bring the teachings into your everyday experience. The course begins September 13th. Learn more and sign up today at learn.tricycle.org. That's learn.tricycle.org. Last, I'm joined by Ira Helderman, a religious studies scholar, psychotherapist, and lecturer at Vanderbilt University. Helderman's feature article, The McMindfulness Wars, What's a Psychotherapist to Do?, lays out contemporary debates about the ethics of mindfulness-based interventions. Helderman and I explore the long histories of these debates, as well as possible paths forward. Ira Helderman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Why don't you start by telling us what the McMindfulness Wars are? So that phrase is a play on the work of Anne Glaig. In her really important book, The American Dharma, she refers to a mindfulness wars that are currently underway in meditation-based convert Buddhist communities. And what she's doing there is, is marking a shift within the way that convert Buddhist communities have responded to contemporary mindfulness practices from what she describes as a real enthusiasm to something of at least of a debate, if not wars, about their widespread use throughout U.S. society. So I'm kind of playing off of that as I'm tracking a similar kind of shift that I'm seeing within the communities that I study, psychotherapists. So you talk about second-generation mindfulness-based interventions. What are those? I see second-based mindfulness interventions as marking the shift that I'm tracking. They were named by a group of psychotherapists who have attempted to incorporate the, what I would call, widespread criticisms of the contemporary state of mindfulness practices and attempted to sort of correct for some of the problems that have been observed by critics for many, many decades now. 
And so to sort of mark the shift, they have named themselves as having forwarded these second-generation MBIs. And to me, as a historian and religious studies scholar, I see that as signaling this shift in the current state of contemporary mindfulness practices. So in other words, the second generation among psychotherapists would be characterized by an understanding of that critique and grappling with that critique. Is that correct? Exactly. So what I say in the article is that if there is a mindfulness wars taking place right now, perhaps one side of the rhetorical war has kind of won at this point. If you have psychotherapists increasingly saying that there was something wrong with the previous generations of mindfulness-based therapy techniques and therapies that needs to be corrected for, that we need another generation and correction is necessary. Okay, but what is wrong? What is the critique? I mean, what is so wrong with simply teaching mindfulness to somebody who suffers from, say, everyday anxiety or PTSD, say? Well, some would say there's a lot wrong. And what I conjecture is that in the same way that mindfulness has become kind of a global brand, the word McMindfulness itself has become a global brand. And like any good brand, the word McMindfulness both conveys something of what the critique is, as well as has become an empty signifier holding a whole host of criticisms. So essentially, the criticism is, is that mindfulness practices have become McDonaldized. They've become routinized and delivered on an assembly line, but without true substance, without true nutritional value. So in other words, they've been deracinated or they've been pulled out of their ethical or religious context and served more or less like a technique. Exactly. So one of the major concerns has been the way that early generations of clinicians intentionally sought to extract mindfulness practices out of Buddhist contexts and what I say in my book, Prescribing the Dharma, is they translated these practices into clinical techniques. And concerns were raised about that for the way that it was separating these practices from their Buddhist frameworks, and then a whole host of other critiques as well. And the, sort of the tip of the spear of those critiques is the McMindfulness critique, which says that Mindfulness practices, the way they're being used right now, is teaching us that our problems are our individual problems, and they're for us as individual persons to solve. They are adjusting us to our problems, soothing us and relaxing us and de-stressing us, rather than questioning the state of society and the many societal causes of suffering that we're actually facing. So second-generation mindfulness practices tend to correct for all of that by, for example, recontextualizing mindfulness practices within the Eightfold Path. And the idea is that if right mindfulness is taught, contextualized within a larger Buddhist framework, then that will be one thing that will forestall those problems. Okay, just really quickly, say I'm anxious and I'm dealing with debilitating anxiety. And I go to a therapist who uses mindfulness-based interventions, and I pay this therapist. This therapist teaches me these mindfulness-based interventions, and I begin practicing them, and my anxiety is relieved. What's the problem? Well, if we take your question out of context, perhaps nothing. But let's say your anxiety is actually the result of the mistreatment that you experience every day by an employer that is corrupt and exploitative. Or let's say your anxiety is the result of intimate partner violence 
that you're experiencing at home. If you are just less anxious and you don't address those issues, then all we've done is put a Band-Aid over the real issue rather than addressing the core of your suffering. And one thing I just want to emphasize, again, as an historian and a religious studies scholar, as well as a practicing therapist, is that decades and decades ago, as I wrote previously in the magazine about Eric Fromm, Decades ago, Eric Fromm was pointing this out and pointing out concerns about adjusting people to issues that they actually need to take social action towards correcting. So in your article, you note that, and I'm quoting you here, today psychotherapists often feel trapped in a catch-22, convinced by many aspects of the mindfulness critique, yet also believing that mindfulness practices are powerful methods for healing suffering people. Have you found yourself caught in this bind? As a clinician, absolutely, absolutely. As I referenced, I mainly do history as a religious studies scholar, but I also use other religious studies methodologies like ethnography and what's called autoethnography. And I'm definitely drawing on my own experience as a therapist there. It, it is a bind. It's a bind that I think, as I've interviewed therapists and listened, that more and more therapists are kind of attuned to as they read on Twitter or get one of the popular books that are marketed very well on the, on the subject. And they're questioning, and again, have been for a long time, how do I use these practices that are so transformative with people without actually contributing to harm? Therapists, by and large, identify as liberal progressives. They got into a helping profession to be of help. So they're highly concerned to hear that they might actually be perpetuating harm rather than bringing healing towards it. In the piece you talk about, and the second part of the title of the piece that we gave it, is what's a therapist to do? So you're sitting with somebody who's suffering. You want to give them these mindfulness techniques. What is the dilemma? I think that for most therapists, most of the therapists I've interviewed for my research would say, actually, when they're sitting across from that person, the only thing that they're really attuned to is that person's pain. The only thing they want to be attuned to is, how can I ease this person's suffering? And there are extreme cases we can think of. If you have somebody that is self-harming, there's a practice that can help that person be non-reactive to their cravings to cut or burn themselves. Therapists know this is not a rhetorical question. This is not a theoretical question that we're looking at from 100 feet above and critiquing our culture. This is a person. So the only thing that they're going to care about is, how can I ease this person's suffering? We spoke earlier about how the causes of that person's suffering are also extremely important as well. And so that therapist is going to want to try to create a balance there. If that person is cutting out of a sense of protest, if that self-harm is a way of, of screaming out for help of the abuse and disempowerment that they're experiencing, the therapist wants to attend to that as well. And so it's a balance. And whenever I think about balance, I always think about the tightrope walker with that pole that they're holding, which is always jogging up and down, up and down. So it's not, balance is not something we just achieve once and we're done. It's a constant titration. And I think that the best therapists are working in that spirit. Okay, well, let's take this out of the therapeutic environment for a moment, because therapists are inclined to look at a, uh, the social context in which a person is presenting particular issues like anxiety or PTSD or anything else. We have corporations that have adopted this practice. 
you know that Monsanto, for instance, adopted this practice where its employees, Aetna, I believe, has perhaps Google. What happens in that context? So first I'll say, I do believe that primarily the mindfulness critique is trained towards the corporate use of mindfulness practices more than healthcare usages. It's trained towards the military use of mindfulness practices as well. But this does give me an opportunity to deliver one of the main messages I was hoping to get out in this piece, which is that it's all really complicated and that one of my issues with much of the debate that surrounds contemporary mindfulness practices is is the way it tends to flatten things out into good and bad, kind of a dualistic perspective on, on mindfulness practices as a whole. When I think we do better to offer a more balanced and humble kind of perspective on the contemporary state of mindfulness practices. So to me, it's not simple. When it comes to corporations, there are some therapists that strongly, strongly believe that wherever the Dharma can find its way in the door, that's a positive thing. And so they look at this as a subversive process that's going to ultimately upend some of the ills of uh, the worst of late global capitalism. I guess what I would say about it is that I think it's too soon to tell. It's too soon to tell whether mindfulness practices could upend things from the inside out, or if they're only being used to perpetuate harm that we see year after year in our political economic system. There are some people that would strongly believe we're looking at the spread of the Dharma and other people that think we're looking at the decline of it until another rebirth of the Buddha comes along to teach us again. Right. So in other words, the effect that the mindfulness training has on the employee at, say, Monsanto, if they still do this, would be either that they acclimate and are soothed and participate more fully in its project, or they're awakened to that something is amiss and it has a sort of subversive effect on that employee's commitment to that particular corporation. So those are the two possible effects it might have. Is that right? Exactly. I I think that's a great way of putting it, that Perhaps their boss is teaching this practice to the worker to try to pacify them. But once that worker is really engaged in the practice, they're actually going to become more conscious, more aware of the harm that's befallen them, and they become socially active around it. The thing I always think about is that mindfulness practices were being used at Occupy Wall Street rallies. They were being used there as well as being used at corporate retreats. And so, again, to flatten things out and say, you know, the state of mindfulness is just bad in in that kind of totalizing way, I think is really, again, flat at the least. You know, you use a pretty extreme analogy to describe this dilemma, a doctor on a battlefield. Why don't you say something about that? It's actually not my metaphor. It's a commonly used metaphor. If you have a medic that's on the army battlefield and the soldier is writhing there before them in pain, does the medic stop and think to themselves, well, this is an unjust war. If I ease this person's pain, if I heal their wounds, they're just going to be put back onto the front lines of this war and just cause more suffering. Most medics are going to just jump in and tend to the wounds. But psychotherapists, as a particular population at least, have a history of challenging that and complicating those kinds of dilemmas for sure. So what do you think about going forward? What are some of the possible ways we might advance? In terms of the way forward, 
there are some psychotherapists that are trying to develop new methods, such as these second-generation mindfulness-based interventions. I think there are real questions about whether these second-generation MBIs are actually a move forward or whether they really are rhetorical, whether it's more for a historian to mark that therapists are wanting to do something new or if something is really new happening there. You know, mindfulness practices are undergoing a real evolution, not only by at least being uh, attentive to Buddhist teachings, but by really thinking about what are the causes of a person's suffering? What does bring true healing to people? How do we define what is health? And how can that be related to concepts like enlightenment? That if we are truly thoughtful about these larger questions and are intentional in a real way, there is a path forward. So the questions we're asking are very different from the questions that were asked when mindfulness first entered the psychotherapeutic community. Is that right? I mean, you talk about Eric Fromm and that this question has existed for a long time, but the emphasis on these questions may be stronger. I think that your question speaks to the tension there. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I would say that when Buddhist practices in general were first starting to be attended to by psychotherapists, which initially was at a time when the word mindfulness was barely a whisper on anyone's lips, even as the phrase be here now certainly was. When mindfulness was first brought into mindfulness-based stress reduction, for example, I do think it is probably the case that some of these criticisms and concerns were at a lower level. There were less voices contributing to that side of the conversation. I also think it's important to contextualize these critiques as you rightfully done and as I previously wrote for the magazine about, Eric Fromm was taught what he referred to as just Buddhist meditation by Nyanaponika Thera himself. And he believed that that practice was actually going to right the worst wrongs of what he referred to as well as a spiritual marketplace back in the 60s. He thought that it was going to be this practice that was going to graduate from the commodification of Zen and the way that Zen was being used or Tao was being used at that time. Right. So I think it's important as a religious studies scholar that we know that history because so much of these critiques are being reborn on the wheel of rebirth, perhaps, each time marketed as a new insight, when really there are old critiques of therapeutic culture that go back to the 60s and 70s. And at the same time, there is something new that's happening here. There is a shift. Again, if you have these therapists that are trying to forward something new, then what that means is that there's a consensus that's taken place in these communities that says, we need something new. Well, thank you very much. And I find the historical perspective especially helpful in contextualizing this entire, well, McMindfulness War or the McMindfulness Wars. Thank you so much, Ira. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Jordan Qualia, Vanessa's We Say Goddard, and Ira Helderman on Tricycle Talks. You can read their articles, as well as the rest of the fall issue, at tricycle.org slash magazine. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org and let us know what you think. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest, Sarah Fleming, and Julia Hirsch. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. 
Thanks for listening. 